know about Jesus and give God honor in every way. So we're going to take the second part of the chapter, uh, second chapter of John. We did the first part last week, and we're going to do the second part this week. And this is a side of Jesus. So first part of chapter John, uh, John chapter two, uh, Jesus is at a wedding, and he's performing a miracle and a communal uh, miracle. In here, we're going to see another side of Jesus, and it's actually. In my mind, one of the favorite parts of Jesus that I enjoy, and hopefully I'll reveal this to you in a loving way. So let me read it for you, and then we're going to talk about this portion of Scripture. It says, after, after this, so after the wedding, so this is what it's picking up. It's picking up the story. It says, after the wedding, after this, Jesus went down to Capernaum with his mother, his brother, his disciples, and they did not stare there many days because Passover was coming. So Jesus leaves the wedding, and goes back down to his hometown. It's kind of like stays in, stays in Capernaum for a while where his home base was, gets his stuff together, gets everything together, and he begins the journey to Jerusalem because Passover was at hand. And it says, uh, Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he found those in the temple who sold oxen, sheep, doves, and there also were money changers doing business. And when he made a whip out of cords, he drove them out of the temple and with the sheep in the auction and poured over the tables of the money changers. And he said, this house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of merchandise. And the disciples remembered when they looked at him, a verse came to their heart that zeal for your house has eaten me up. And so the Jews or the rabbis and the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to him and said, what sign, what prophetic demonstration will you show to us that gives us you the authority to do these things? And then Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews, speaking of the physical temple, said, this temple has taken 46 years to build and you're trying to say you're going to rebuild it in three days. But he was not speaking of that temple. He was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered this and they believed what the scripture said about him. And now when Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Passover, he did many miracles there. Say with me, many miracles. And many believed in his name, and they saw the signs, but Jesus would not commit himself to them at this time, for he knew what was in their heart. So Jesus goes back to Capernaum. So you can throw the first slide up there, Alex. I just want to give you guys some understanding, some geographical understanding. So this is basically Israel, right? You have Egypt down here, and you have Syria over this way. And so Capernaum is up here on the Sea of Galilee. So this is kind of like the Lake Okeechobee of Israel, right? Just saying. Right? Shout out to Florida. And so Jesus was living on Okeechobee, Lake Okeechobee. He's up here. And so what they would do, and that's where his family was, is a very unimportant area because it was a crossroad of trade. So Jesus always put his ministry, his decision to put his ministry there was not uh, random. It was, a, it was because all, it was called uh, Galilee of the Gentiles. And so what happens was is all of the nations that would pass through on a trade route, and, and when they had to trade, especially with Egypt, which was a very popular trade center at the time, they would have to pass through Israel to get to Egypt. And there was only two ways to get to, to, get to Egypt. You had to come down the, the way of the sea, or you had to come down the king's highway, and the king's highway would lead you through Jerusalem. So, you, so no matter who was coming towards Egypt or anybody that was coming to Jerusalem, you had to pass through Capernaum. And so it was a multicultural city, like Miami. There are multiple ethnicities living in Capernaum, like Miami. 
Not, it was not a homogenous region. Jerusalem was a homogenous region. They were, all, they were all of the same background. They were all Judean. You know, and if you were not Judean, you really knew you weren't really welcome there. Capernaum was a little bit more of a metroplex. And so that's kind of like what's going on here. So Jesus is coming back from the wedding. He's staying in town for a few days, and he's getting ready to go up. The Bible says up to Jerusalem, because what they would do is they would come down into a valley in Jerusalem set up on a mountain, so they would have to go up to the city. So Jesus goes back there, and this is just an important point. just want to highlight this. With his, say it with me. Jesus returned to Capernaum with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. Did you catch the word brothers there? Right? So Joseph married Mary as a virgin. Mary gave birth to Jesus as a virgin. Joseph didn't know Mary until after Mary gave birth to Jesus. Right? But Mary did not stay a virgin forever. She's not the celestial virgin. She's not the eternal virgin, right? It's important that we understand that. Mary is just a woman like you, chosen by God of a specific lineage to perform a specific mandate that God did through her. So this is important to know. Jesus had brothers, right? It's important to know that. James, actually the book of James is Jesus' half-brother, right? It's not James the apostle. It's James, Jesus' half-brother, and so three times a year, all Jewish males had to come to Jerusalem. Every three times. So three times a year, gentlemen, you were required to set the calendar, and you had to go to Jerusalem if you were an observant Jew. You could take your family if you wanted to, but you were not required. But the firstborn male of every household or a male representative of every household had to go to Jerusalem. And they were required to go there for Passover, for Pentecost, and for the Feast of Tabernacles. And they would go to Passover, and so 50 days after Passover was Pentecost. So typically what would happen, they would travel to Jerusalem, and they'd stay in Jerusalem for two months, unless you lived down the street. Then you'd just go down the street. You know, you'd live a few miles away, you'd go back to your family. But if you were coming from, like, Macedonia or something, you're coming from, like, a long ways away, you would travel to Jerusalem, stay there for the, for the, extra, two, the extra 50 days, so that you could be present at the day of Pentecost, and then you would go back home, and then you would come back in the fall uh, for the Feast of Tabernacles. They were required. The feasts of the Lord are very specific. God gave seven in the Old Testament, seven, seven feasts. The Jews added two, um, so it makes nine. So if you ever see a candelabra or a menorah, some menorahs have seven, some menorahs have nine. God gave seven feasts. The Jews added two. They added... Uh, Purim, and then they added the, fe the Feast of Lights, which is Hanukkah. They added those two feasts, uh, and they added a feast day to their calendar related to great victories that God gave them. The important thing to know about feasts, and this is very important, God says, these are my feasts, and these will be holy convocations. So when he says feasts, he uses the word mikra, which is the word appoint or a rehearsal. Say it with me. A feast was a rehearsal. And he said convocation, it's the Hebrew word moed, and it means appointment. And so what he's telling them is on these feasts, you're going to rehearse some things. You're all going to, so the feasts are all about these rituals and all about these rehearsals. If you've ever been to a Passover Seder, you're thinking you're going for a dinner party, right? And you're eating like three hours later, right? Because there's all this rehearsal stuff going on before they actually, when's the, when's the food coming out, Carmen? Where is that lamb roast that was promised? We got another hour. What? You know, you know what I'm talking about? Anybody know what I'm talking about here? Anybody at all? Right? 
But the, because the, the, the feast was about a rehearsal, it's about a performance. And with the, so when Passover, they would come and there would be a performance. All of the people would have to participate in this performance and they would have to drill it into their head. And it was drilled into their head. It became so ritualistic. If you were a boy or a girl and you were raised with this, you would know what was going to happen before it even happened. And the, the reason that they were rehearsing the feast is because on that day, God promised to do something. He said, you're going to rehearse for a day when I will fulfill an appointment to you. And so they would rehearse at Passover. Anybody know what happened at Passover? Jesus was crucified. You understand that? Jesus was crucified. Three days after Passover begins another feast, the, fe uh, the Feast of first fruits. Anybody know what happened three days after Jesus was crucified? He was resurrected. What? The firstborn, first fruits of the resurrection from the dead. Fulfilling Passover, fulfilling first fruits. And during that week, he was declared sinless, which he actually, so if you really want to get down on it, the first three feasts he, he fulfilled immediately. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. You have the Feast of Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, and you have the Feast of first fruits. Jesus fulfilled Passover. He was declared sinless before he was crucified, fulfilling the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and he was raised on the very day of first fruits. Fulfilled them. So all their lives they were rehearsing and Jesus shows up. He's the one to fulfill the appointment. He fulfills the appointment and he's like, boom, there it is. Pentecost. Pentecost is an interesting feast. Anybody know what happened on the day of Pentecost? Come on, help me out. We got Christians in the room. Anybody here? Holy Spirit came. What does the Bible say in the book of Acts? When the day of Pentecost had what? Fully come. It wasn't the day before. It wasn't the day after. It was the day of Pentecost. And so what the priests would do on the day of Pentecost, they would go out, so it was the barley harvest, they would have to go out and they would cut down the first fruit of the barley harvest, and then they would, they would come in and they would cut the sheaths, and the priests would go towards the temple waving palm branches. Whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. You get the picture? Rushing wind, going towards the temple. And then they would pour water down the steps of the temple. And you get the picture, right? And freely we drink of the fountain of salvation. They would quote scriptures and they would do different things. But they performed this ritual and all of the males were supposed to be there to watch the crucifixion or not the, or the, they were there to be there to celebrate Passover because on one specific day, Jesus was going to be crucified and that would be a Passover like no other. And how many knows if you're from Macedonia and you went there, you're going to go, I don't know what happened this Passover, man, but this was crazy. This was crazy. The whole city was in an uproar. And they crucified this dude, right? And then he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. You, you get the picture? They were to be witnesses of what God did in the appointments that he had made with his ancestry for their whole life. And they were to take that and bring it into the world. They were to take the message that they had received and they were to bring it to their families. They were to bring it to their households. They were to bring it to the ends of the earth, literally. This was the idea. Listen. God performs in time and on time. You understand that? He doesn't stutter. There are three feasts that are yet to be fulfilled, and people don't think they're going to be fulfilled. You're out of your mind. He's going to fulfill them on the day, on the hour, at the moment, in time, on time. And people say, oh, well, those feasts require a temple. Wait and see. Temple's on its way. It's coming, Right? These feasts couldn't even be fulfilled until Israel became a nation. This nation didn't exist for 2,000 years. The Romans destroyed it, and it was trampled underfoot. 
And the Lord said, at the time of the end, when the time of the Gentiles was being fulfilled, these things will come to pass. Israel became a nation after 2,000 years. 1948. 1967, I think, they took Jerusalem. Now everybody's like kind of going, oh, wow, this is actually possible, right? They're kind of like, well, they still got to build the temple. They still got to build the temple. You Really? You think that's the hard part of this? Building a temple? Gee, there will be a temple in Jerusalem. And the prophetic timetable will be fulfilled just as he said. Make no mistake. <laughs> Make no mistake. So throw up the next slide. So what Jesus encounters... Okay, so this is a temple mount. So Jesus comes in, right? What, what happens here is that the people were required to come for worship. So this is the temple. This is the area where all of the sacrificial, uh, the, well, this area in particular would be where all the sacrifices were taking place. And so what happens is, is Jesus comes into the temple, and this outer area here on the southern side of the temple, it was called the court of the Gentiles, and so what happens is, is that the Jewish priests decided, hey, this is a great way to make some money, right? And so they, they set up a bazaar out here. It was actually the high priest was in charge of it. It was called the Bazaar of Ananias, Ananias. And so Ananias had set up this bazaar, kind of like Hylia Flea Market right out here. So we have Hylia Flea Market, the swap shop going on right out here, outside of the courts of the temple on the holiest day of the year. And Jesus rides in, sees this, and goes like full-on fight club, right? He just does. This south side of the temple is called, this, this is the pilgrim gate. So all of the nations would come through this gate. This is where they would come. This is called the golden gate. This is the gate that Jesus went through when he, rode on the, when he, he went through the eastern gate, prophesied by the book of Zechariah that the Messiah will come through the eastern gate. And there's another story about that, and I'll tell you in a minute. So Jesus is the one. He came in on the colt. He came through the eastern gate, but this is the pilgrim gate. So this is where the pilgrims would come through. And right here, greeting you, would be Hialeah Philip Swap Shop. Right here. It's right there. Right there. All you need. Need new tires? Right? Need some new hooves on your camels? We got you. We got you. You know? Hey, man, where'd you get this? Don't ask. Just buy it. Just don't ask me where I got it. Just buy it. Right? And so the people were required to bring a sacrifice. Every family, this is nuts, right? Imagine this. This is nuts. So the historian Josephus, the Jewish historian Josephus, who wrote about this period of time, and so he said that the city would swell to two to three million people at this time. So literally, this city would just become overwhelmed. You talk about owning an Airbnb in Jerusalem at this time, you'd be getting some great rates, man, because it's like the whole city would flow and everything would be outflowed. They, they estimated, so they had to sacrifice on average, it was one lamb per 10 people. And so the estimate was between 200 and 300,000 lambs. 200 and 300,000 lambs were sacrificed on that temple mount during the day, uh, during the, during the day of Passover or during Passover. What, what do you think the storyline is there? It's about the blood. It was a bloody, bloody, bloody day. The priests were to wear all white, and as they're sacrificing these lambs on the mount, they had to walk back and forth. They would take the blood, and they would pour the blood out on the altar 200,000 times from dusk till dawn. That would take a team of people. The logistics of that is just, un I, I can't even fathom it, but they had it down because they were required to do it. As the priests would walk back and forth, their blood, their garments would be soaked. You, you ever walk through dirt, ladies, with your, you have a long dress on and how the water just picks up? Imagine the blood would be picked up on the garment, would probably be up to the knees of the priest by the end of the day. Because the testimony of that day is it's not about the lamb, it's about the blood of the lamb. 
You get it? And so a family was, every family was supposed to bring an offering. And so Carmen would go out and she'd have her little sheep pen out there. And even if she was raising chickens, she was required to raise a lamb. And so she'd have a couple of lambs because one of these, Larry, Larry the lamb's going to go with me to Passover one day. And she'd raise Larry the lamb and she'd bond with Larry the lamb. And then she'd take Larry the lamb and load Larry the lamb in a cart. And Larry the lamb would be treated like a king. Larry the lamb would be like, what did I do to deserve this, Carmen? <laughs> And then she'd bring Larry the lamb into the sacrifice and walk Larry the lamb up to the priest and she would have to watch the blood be shed. You would have to watch the blood be shed. Why? Because sacrifice costs something. Sin costs something, right? We like to look away from it, but it costs. Sin costs someone something. Sin brings pain. The Messiah, what he's doing is, is significant. Giving his life away is a significant event. And so there, this, was, this was the testimony. And so when John, Jesus, the Lamb of God that took away the sins of the world, he, he bled to the uttermost. He almost bled out before he got to the cross. Yeah? I mean, it was that bloody. It was a bloody day. But, it was all, but hey, it was a holiday. You were supposed to celebrate. They were supposed to party. They're like, woo! After Carmen got over the trauma of killing Larry the lamb, then it would be all right. But God had designed it that each family would bring a sacrifice because the family was supposed to feel the pain in the offering. And so what the priests would do is they would disqualify um, the offering. So you bring Larry the lamb up, and they'd look at Larry, and they'd go, well, you know, Larry's got a little chip on his hoof there. I don't think we, you know, his left tooth's a little chipped. I don't think we can take Larry. But hey, guess what? We have some kosher certified lambs right this way. It's the first used car lot in the history of the world right here. We don't need your right this way. We got one for you. And they were marking up the prices 600%. And so a $100 lamb, I don't know, do the math. You know, they, they were marking it up. And so they were extorting the people. They were disallowing the offerings, and they were extorting them. Then the other side of the coin is on Passover and on Tabernacles, which were the two seasons of the Jewish harvest, the people would bring their tithes to Jerusalem. So they would bring their tithe. But if you came with Syrian shekels, you had to trade your Syrian shekels in for temple shekels. And it was an exchange rate that was exorbitant. And so they were ripping the people off. And the whole time, the priests are the one that's overseeing this whole, this whole system. It's kind of like, you know, when we go to Orlando, we're going to get in the gate and commerce is going to kick in. Sherry's going to say, hey, I think I want to I want a lemon slushy, And you go up and they'll be like, that'll be $24. And I'll be like, for a lemon slushy, You know what I'm saying? You know, commerce kicks in. And it's kind of what they were doing. They were looking at it and they were extorting it. And they were completely oblivious to why this whole event was taking place. They were completely, they had completely lost the script of why they were there and what they were doing. Throw that slide back up there, Alex. So let me show you this real quick, all right? So this is the eastern gate. This is the gate that Jesus came through. So Zechariah says the Messiah will go through the gate, and Zechariah also says that the gate will be closed. And once the gate is closed, it will only be reopened by the Messiah, right? So Messiah will come through the gate, then the gate will be closed, and then once this gate is closed, nobody's going to go through that gate except Jesus. Throw it up the next slide. This is the Eastern Gate today. It's closed. This is in the Muslim section, the Islamic section of Israel, right? And so the Islams, the Muslims know this verse or they know something about it. And so they say, we know what we're going to do. We're going to put a graveyard right in front of the Eastern Gate. 
And that graveyard is going to keep the Jewish Messiah because no, no self-respecting Jew would ever go into a graveyard because that would defile them. Well, it doesn't defile Jesus. He's the God of the resurrection. He just snaps his, his fingers. The bodies fly out of the way. He's not offended by a graveyard, but they put a graveyard in front of the eastern gate thinking that's what's going to keep the Messiah out, and then they blocked up the eastern gate. That gate will stay blocked. If you're alive when he comes, you'll watch Jesus go through the eastern gate, just like he said. Just like he said. Nobody's going through that eastern gate. Do you know why? Because Jesus said nobody's going through that eastern gate but me. You understand? It's the gate that faces the rising of the sun. He is the rising of your life. He's the rising of the sun. That's a very important gate. It's called the golden gate, actually. Amen. So good. So Passover, that what Passover comes from is they were to take a lamb. It goes back to the book of Exodus. So Passover was the center. It was the, they had two, they had two New Year's, right? Can you imagine? You have two New Year's? You thought one New Year's Day. You thought a hangover from New Year's Day was enough. You had two hangover days. And he goes like, I don't know about that, Pastor. I don't do anything like that. I wouldn't know anything that you're talking about. Okay, well, let's just say sleepless night for some of you, maybe. I'm not saying, I mean, look, I don't, I don't do that either. But you, know, but, I get the, but you get the picture. They had two celebration days. They had a religious New Year or a spiritual New Year, which was Passover. And then they had a civil New Year or a governmental New Year, which was Rosh Hashanah. And so this shifted their spiritual count, uh, calendar. It was a time where they were spiritually renewed spiritually refreshed. The nation could come and become spiritually refreshed, right? At Rosh Hashanah, it was the time when the government shifted, right? When you don't, don't you want the government over your life to shift, right? Not even national government. Whatever's been ruling me, move out of the way, right? And so this was the power that God put over his people. They were transition points for them. And so they, instead of making it something that they understood, this was a spiritual new year, this is when you're coming to be spiritually refreshed, they turned it into a den of thieves. And so just to understand, Passover goes back to the book of Exodus. They were to take a Passover lamb. They were to kill the lamb between the evenings, which is between 3 and 6 p.m., and that's exactly when Jesus died. They were to strike the doorposts with blood. They were to take the lamb. They were to roast it with fire. They were to eat it with their family. They were to pack unleavened bread in their bags, and they were to eat it with their clothes on and their staff in their hand, like, get ready, right? Get ready to go. Listen, when the gospel comes to you, if you don't know Jesus and the gospel comes to you, it's not next week, it's now. When the offer of salvation comes and the offer of salvation is always on the table, it's not something you refuse. It's something you take in hand and you accept it and you move into it. They were to accept Christ and they were to move into it. This is the whole idea. He didn't say, eat the lamb and sit down and y'all chill out for a while. He said, no, eat the lamb, grow, develop, move, become. This was the idea. Amen. <laughs> so these were the bazaars of Ananias. I just like to throw this in here because I just like to, anytime. It's like irrelevant biblical information that I just get to say. I'll get to stack that in there. Oh, let me throw that in there, right? Ananias and Caiaphas were the high priests in Jesus' day. They were not legitimate high priests. To be a legitimate high priest, you had to be a direct descendant of Aaron. What the Romans did when they took the city is they started, they, they auctioned the priesthood off to the highest bidder. So they allowed families, Jewish families, to buy them, to buy the high priesthood. So neither Caiaphas nor uh, Ananias were legitimate high priests. They had no right to the office. They called Jesus illegitimate, yet they're illegitimate. You understand? Right? They get mad at the tax collector, yet their exchange rates were bordering on, were extortion. 
And you wonder why Jesus called them hypocrites, right? Religiously correct, no compassion, creating a self-serving system that served only them. Hmm? Sounds familiar. <laughs> that's right. And that's not what Jesus is about at all. So they were required, they were bringing, they're like, hey, we can do this. You know, the people are bringing their tithes, man. You know, we can really rip them off simply by requiring. God never required temple money. It's important to know that. Their rules, so I want you to understand this. Jesus is there, say this with me. The, the, I don't want to say church. All right, religious is, religion's rules, come on are not Jesus's rules. They made up a bunch of rules and none of them were Jesus's rules. Throw it back up there. I'll show you another one. I love this. Throw that slide, that other slide back up there. No, the other one. I'm sorry. The other, other one. <laughs> All right. So this, this is what would be what happened. This was the court of the women. Sounds great, doesn't it, dudes? Oh, you ladies stay out there. We men are going to go in and have some cigars in the, in the room and worship God real good. This court of the women was never designated by Jesus. You can read it in every, there's three temples in the Bible. There's a tabernacle, there's, there's um, well, there's, you know, yeah, Solomon's temple, then basically became Herod, got torn down, then it became Herod, built another temple, and then there's the third temple that's going to happen, which is um, uh, Ezekiel's temple. None of them prescribe a court of the Gentiles, and none of them prescribe a court of women. They were exclusive. Jesus was inclusive. He said, it's a house of worship for all nations. It's a house of prayer and communion where people can connect with me. This is what he's saying. For everybody. You've made it segregated. I desire it integrated. You understand what I'm saying? And so here you have the court of the women. So what would happen? This is where the treasury was. So with the people, so all the dudes, this is the dudes were allowed to come in here. So they were allowed to go in a little deeper. So the dudes would be passing. They'd leave their life out here. You stay out here, honey. I'll, I'll be back in a little bit. They'd go and drop the offering, their tithe, their, their semi-annual tithe into the, um, from what they, ever, what they harvested, into the treasury. And then they would go into the court of the real men. Woo, right? Manly. You know where Jesus was hanging out? In the court of the women. How do we know this? Because we know that the treasury was there, and he was watching the treasury. So there's a couple of lessons. Jesus doesn't care about what you give. Oh, yes, he does. He watched what they gave. Uh-huh, yeah, right? Doesn't matter if the pastor watches what you give. Jesus is watching what you give. And so Jesus watched what they gave, and Jesus is hanging out in the court of the women. No self-respecting Jew would hang out in the court of the women. I'm sure the disciples were looking around going, man, I hope nobody sees us here, Jesus. You know, Jesus is like, mocha spice latte, bring it over here. He's just sitting there drinking coffee, watching everything go by. You know why? Your rules, not mine. Your rules, not mine. I guarantee you, if somebody would have confronted him in the court of the women, we would have had the greatest teaching on his relationship to women we'd ever seen. But nobody dared talk to him. How dare you stand in the court of the women? Nobody dared. Nobody dared because it was a religious system, not backed up by scripture. It was a religious system, not backed up by scripture. You understand that? Just because religion, church, church culture is not kingdom culture. It's not kingdom culture. Jesus was like, hey, why don't you wash your hands? He's like, your rule's not mine, right? Why don't you fast? Your rule's not mine. 
They were talking about rituals. They were talking about a fasting ritual. Why don't you ritualistically fast? Because it's not about ritual. It's about relationship, right? I'm sure Jesus, is fa- Jesus fasted plenty, but he didn't want everybody to know. They wanted everybody to know. They put ashes on their head, tear their garment. Would you like something from the bake sale today, Pastor? No, I'm fasting. This is my fast Friday, my fast Tuesday, my fast, you know, it's my fast weekend. He never did that because he didn't dance to their rules. He didn't play by their rules. He walked right in them. He healed on the Sabbath. How dare you heal on the Sabbath? Your rule's not mine. Huh? Some of you should get free from this because the church lays down rules that are not biblical and they're not textual. Oh, do I have time? So I want to say this. 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 Do I want to say this, Jesus? Lord, do I want to say this? Who said that? Did my wife say say it? Okay, then I have permission to say it. She sounds uncannily like the Holy Spirit when she speaks. It's like, I don't understand. Say you, Lord. Oh, that's Sherry. Close. All right. This is important. This is extremely important. This is important for a lot of reasons, and I can list them, but the most important reason is that the devil put, Jesus said, I will put enmity between you and the woman. The church has neutered women or relegated women to the outside, and there's two passages of scripture that are often quoted in the Bible, right? And now I gotta give you full disclosure as I launch out here to emancipate you ladies. Would you like to be emancipated? Huh? Right, I'm gonna emancipate you. Not <laughs> the Bible. So here we have these verses in the Bible that say, I do not permit women to teach nor have authority over a man, for, this is, for Adam was created first, or no, that's the second one, but for this is right under the law. And so the church will come around and say, women are not to teach nor have authority over, the, over, over a man. And, it, and, then the ne- and I'm like, we'll read it in context. Because in context, it says, well, this is right according to the law. When people quote that verse to me, I always ask them, are we under law? Are we under law? Or is the woman still under law? You have to understand something. And this is going to freak people out because they don't like it, but it's true. When Catholicism, when the Protestants broke from Catholicism, they took with them a lot of traditions from the Catholic Church. Traditions, you understand? Paul was an Orthodox Jew of the highest caliber. When Paul left Judaism, he still carried with him a lot of viewpoints of, the, of, the, of Judaism. He's circumcising in the beginning of the New Testament, but at the, old te- at the end of the Old Testament, he said circumcision is nothing. He's taking Nazarite vows in the beginning of the New Testament, but at the end of his New Testament, he's saying it means nothing. You understand this? He's working it out. And so he's bringing into Christianity a lot of viewpoints that were not Jesus. They were religion. The woman is subjugated according to the law. Well, is she under law? Is she under law? Then the second one says this. I do not permit women to ask questions in the church. Let the women be silent in the church. And if they have a question, let them ask their husband at home. Because Adam was created first and then Eve. So his context is first the law. Now his context is creation. Now here's the next question. At what point did Eve become subordinate to Adam? When? At the fall. Eve was never subordinate to Adam. She was created as his equal. 
I told you I'm going to fry your brain on this, and this isn't something, but I've been, I'm, you know, I just feel like this is something that needs to be said. And people are going to get mad and they're going to go, oh, this is breaks tradition. This breaks tradition. Well, how about it liberates some people? How about that? Right? How about we look at this and say, and, and quote the scripture in context, quote it in context, right? You know, or, or quote it as he's quoting it, as Paul is quoting it. Is the woman, when was she subjected to man? When she fell, he will rule over you, right? Your desire will be for him, but he will have authority over you. She was in equal status with him. Complimentary, she had a different skill set, just like husbands and wives, you see you have a different skill set. They weren't to compete with one another, they were to complete one another. But the wife was never subjugated to Adam until Adam fell. God never called them Adam and Eve, he called them both Adam, male and female, and he called them Adam. It was only in the separation that the, the, even their names become distinguished. This whole concept of a Christians, when they get married, the two become what? One. Right, right. So is God disqualifying his women from leadership in the church? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Mike, you just, I'm just saying, who told you that? So I'm going to explain to you. So I want you guys to have full disclosure so you can understand who I am and where I'm coming from, right? And my wife has had to bear with me long on this subject. I was of the opposite viewpoint on this. I believed, not, not to the complete subjugation of women, but I just believed, because I'm a biblicist, I'm like, if I can't see this in the text, man, then I have to be obedient to the text. One day, a few years back, I'm praying through this stuff, and the subject came up again, and the Lord goes, read on. And I read a little further, and it said, for this is right according to the law. And I hear the Holy Spirit say to me, are women under the law? Are women under the law? See, I didn't come up with this. The Lord asked me, just question, Kevin. Are women under the law? Have we been liberated from the law? Or are we all liberated and women are still under the law? Right? Is, is, does the Bible not say that there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, but all are equal? And people will say equal in value and worth. No, no, no. It's the full restoration of the Edenic vision. The vision of Eden is fully restored in Christ. The equality of the relationship comes in. She doesn't dominate him, and he doesn't dominate her. It's a co-labor. It's a submission one to another. It's mutuality. The husband is the directional leader. That's the way it was when it was designed. Adam was supposed to say, this is the direction. What do you think? Yes, let's go in that direction. And there was a, there was a, there was a, a cooperation between the husband and the wife. I don't know if this is helping or if I'm really hurting some of you and you're getting mad. You're going to go, man, I've had my wife subjected for 20 years, man. You're blowing it out of the water, bro. You're going to ruin my marriage. No, I'm going to ruin the way you have your marriage set up. He's a liberator. <laughs> Greatest leaders in the New Testament church were women. The prayer meetings were held by women. The, new, the, church's house, the house churches were hosted by women. 100%. 100%. Read it. Later in Paul's ministry, the greatest people that helped him were women. The people who funded him were women. It's, it's nuts. It's nuts. And I believe it's not, it's not right. And it has to be set in order. You'll probably hear me preach this again, so I hope you cheer it the next time. Because this isn't going to get a lot of cheers in certain circles, what I'm saying. Because it's a break with tradition. But you cannot theologically prove that to me. It cannot be theologically proven. If you're going to quote that, then, quote, then answer me, if she, is she under the law? They can't, they can't, not, nobody's going to answer that. And then use the other one. When, when, when did she become subordinate to Adam? 
Again, it doesn't match Scripture. Again, I'm a biblicist, and when it began to match Scripture, it began to harmonize for me. And you know what I said? I'm flipping wrong. It took me a while to say I'm sorry, (laughs) but I did say I'm sorry. I, I was wrong. And I've been still trying to work it out, still trying to work it out. What does God understand? Why? Because, you know, and if you have to understand where Paul was at, he was inundated with a system of thinking. To this day, women walk three steps behind, orthodox. Watch him on Miami Beach. That woman, she's walking three steps behind him at all times. So he came out of a misogynistic culture. He brought that into Christianity. 1 Corinthians 15 is where this comes from. 1 Corinthians 11 says women are to have their head veiled. So I like to tell all my pastor friends out there, if you've got that woman subordinated, make sure they all have their head veiled on Sunday morning because that command is also there. The command of veil your heads, ladies, is in 1 Corinthians 11. The command to be subordinate and don't teach is in 1 Corinthians 15. Huh? Which one's cultural? Oh, they'll say, oh, women are not to have their head veiled because that's cultural. But 1 Corinthians 15, that's not cultural. That's biblical. What? He just told them to veil their heads. It's the same thing. I don't know. Just me. Just me. Pray for me. (laughs) I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you. People have this dynamic that women can't be pastors. Who told you that? No, no, really. Who told you that? Can you show me that? Those are the only two verses in Scripture that subordinate women in the New Testament. And I just gave you the understanding behind them. So show me another one. Give me another one. Don't give me Jewish tradition where they create a temple for the women. That's not in the Bible. Or the court of the Gentiles. You are not full-blood Jew. You worship out here under penalty of death. That's not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. That's what Jesus said. This is a house of prayer for all people. You have segregated it. Just saying. Anyway, moving on. What had happened is the worship was, had been bound to the culture. The Jews were without power. They had no ark. They had no spirit. They had no presence. And so the church, the, 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 the worship had become very bound with the culture, very integrated with the culture. Didn't matter. It was just sort of a, a, just a, a coming and a going. It was all just a, an empty spectacle. There was no relationship. It's not about spectacle. It's about relationship. If you never get a spectacle here, but you get a relationship, then the Lord's will has been done. We have churches that want to give you spectacle, but never give you relationship. You can go on, and I'm not against spectacle. By God, let's have a Ferrari. You know what I mean? Let's swoop some people down. If swooping people down brings people to Jesus, then let's swoop down 50 people at the same time. But at the end of the day, it's not about spectacle, Christian. It's about relationship. The spectacle doesn't drive you into relationship. It doesn't. It ooze and ahs you, but it doesn't drive you into the relationship. The idea is to be driven deeper into the relationship. Isaiah, he says, what's the purpose? Isaiah 1, what's the purpose of these sacrifices? And he tells him, you're bringing them to me with emptiness. I don't have delight in the sacrifices. The sacrifices are designed to bring you to me. He said, you trample my courts. Bring your offerings no more. He tells Amos, stop singing songs. I don't want to hear it anymore. All you do is offer me vanity. So he tells them, emptiness. I'm not interested in emptiness. And so the Jews ask him, so Jesus cleanses the temple. Can you imagine this? This temple, this place would be filled. Anybody been to the swap shop on a a Saturday? Right? Highly a flea market on on a Saturday? 
right? There's a lot of people there. I'd be like Jesus coming around with a whip and driving everybody out of the Hialeah flea market. It was an act of God. He had authority behind him. This was his father's house. He not only drove the people out, he drove the cattle, the sheep, and he flipped the tables over. Nobody stopped him. Nobody stopped him. Do you know why? Because they didn't dare. They didn't dare. And so the rabbis come to him and they're like, whoa, by what prophetic sign do you do this? For they knew that only the Messiah did these things. You know why? They're quoting Malachi. These dudes knew the word of God like the back of their hand. They knew it. They could drop scripture, chapter and verse, like insanely. Malachi says this, The Lord that you are seeking will come to his temple. He will be the messenger of the covenant. The one you desire will come. But who will endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he will come to his house like a refiner's fire with a launderer's soap. <laughs> and he will sit as the refiner of fire and of, of silver and he will purify the Levites and he will refine them as gold and silver. And the Lord will command men to bring offerings in righteousness. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. They knew when Messiah came, he was going to cleanse the temple. So they were, knew that this was some sort of a messianic reference. They asked him for a sign, and Jesus is like, okay, you want a sign? I'll give you one. He's like, okay, you get the fact that what I'm doing is messianic. He got that. He's like, okay, you got that? Then get this. Destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up. What was he referencing? He was referencing the resurrection from the dead which was not something that was hidden in the scriptures at all. Resurrection is mentioned in Isaiah, Psalms, Jonah, and Hosea. If they could figure out he's going to cleanse the house from a verse in Malachi, or they could figure out that he was Messiah riding on a colt from one verse in Zechariah, there are four books. This is just all that I can remember. There's at least more. There's four books that tell him that he's going to rise from the dead. Right? They would have known. Is he referencing the resurrection? You know, could he be the Messiah? And so they asked for a sign, and Jesus gave them one. Jesus demonstrated courage. One person with power and purpose can clear the deck. Huh? Say it with me. One person with power and purpose can clear out the corruption. It's true. You don't think one person makes a difference? He demonstrated courage. And the courage that he demonstrated was with a purpose. And the courage that he demonstrated was with power. You have a purpose, Christian. You have power. I just watched a group, and i just been on this kick lately, and so forgive me if I offend you. I do my best not to, but my name is Pastor Kevin, and I'm your friend. And so how does this relate culturally? You know? Your school systems are being overrun. 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 They just, had a, they just had a school board meeting in San Francisco where there was a drag queen show put on for elementary students. They just, did a, they just put sexually explicit um, in Michigan, in uh, uh, Ann Arbor. They just had, uh, they're, just, they're trying to put this uh, sexually explicit curriculum into the schools at the elementary level. They were overrun by parents. Overrun. They had to cancel the meeting because there were, they were so many parents in the room breaking the fire code. One person with courage. I guarantee you there was one, that the one in San Francisco, there was one mother, one mother who said, enough, enough, right? Enough, enough. There, there are places within our, so, you know, we, we have this debate a lot, and I always say to people, like, look, the church has a voice on the moral law. So I was talking about last week. We don't have a voice on everything. We don't, we know, we're not saying, well, I believe a Christian message on whether Elon Musk should buy Twitter. Who cares? But when it comes to gender identity, huh, you have a voice. 
when it comes to the moral corruption within our society, you have a voice. When it comes to how your children are being raised or educated, you have a voice. And if you think they're going to do it by default, you know that's not what's going to happen. You have a voice, and you need to not be afraid. This is where we, this is where we stand. We have authority on that issue. The church doesn't carry authority in every realm, but in the kingdom we carry authority, and the moral law is the law of our Father. It's not a governmental law. The moral law is what's right and what's wrong. We have a voice in what is right and what is wrong. Yeah? Have courage. Have courage. Don't be afraid. Don't criticize those that are speaking out against something that's right. This is another voice to the church. Stop killing your prophets. You know, I watched the debate, whether you like the guy or not, you know, don't, you know, I'm like, I don't like that guy. Well, it doesn't matter if you like the guy or not, okay? Ben Shapiro, right? He's not a Christian. People are like, I don't support Ben Shapiro because he's not a Christian. Well, he's not a Christian, Christian. That may be so, but he speaks about things that matter. He speaks about moral corruption and the degradation of a society. And because the church won't speak, you don't think God will raise up outsiders to speak on his behalf? Rocks will cry out, huh? It's true. My people will be silent. I'll find one. I'll find a whosoever who will open their mouth on my sake. And I'll double down on that one. It's true. True. Don't kill your prophets. Oh, I don't agree with that guy. I don't know. He's just not this. He's not that. Oh, you know, they believe this. And they, who cares? Can we agree on something? Can we agree on that? Can we support? There's far too few of us and far too few voices in this culture. Far too few. Will people go too far? Yes, they will go too far. But in the words of one man, he said, we're afraid of going too far. We haven't gone nearly far enough. Well, we don't want to go too far. Don't want to go too far, pastor. We haven't gone nearly far enough. <laughs> and we're talking about going too far. Just a thought. <laughs> All right, I'm doing my best. I'm doing my best. So Jesus offers them a sign. He says, hey, you guys are getting this. This is cool. Well, let me give you another one. <laughs> you get this one. Hopefully you'll get this one. But they didn't. They didn't. They wanted to kill him all the more. See, they, they knew who he was. They knew what he was claiming, right? They, they knew it. They said, tell us if you're the Messiah. And he's like, I've already told you. I've already told you. You know why? Because he was speaking his language to them, and they should have known his language. And they didn't know his language. His language was prophetic. His language was the scripture. And he was speaking his identity to them based upon the scripture. And they refused to see it. He held them accountable to know the word. And he spoke to them through the word. Just the thought. Jesus shows honor and value. He shows the value of honor. Everything he did, it was about honor. It had nothing to do with the commerce. Everybody's like, it's the commerce. It's the commerce. Yeah, it's the extortion and all that other stuff. Yes, that's true. But they, were, they had no honor. They, were so, they, they had no reverence for God whatsoever. It was a complete slap in the face on a, on a sacred day that was meant to redeem them from all that was corrupt. It was a sacred day meant to give them spiritual renewal, and they couldn't see past themselves. And the people that were supposed to lead the people were blinded by greed. All they were looking for was another angle to make money. <laughs> yeah, 
They got a cut of the exchange rate. They got a cut of the kosher certified lambs. They made money. It was a whole idea. And what that created, it created a bunch of things. One of the things that it created, it created a corrupt perspective of God. So the worshipers would be coming, and they'd be like, man, dude, this God's corrupt. You know? It's like, how can we think of this God as fairness when all of this is how we're extorted when we come to worship him? God's not fair. God's not equitable. Right? They, they portrayed him as dominating and uncaring. True. They created a system of oppression upon the people who could afford it least. Because all, say with me, all, all. were required to give. You were not allowed to show up empty-handed. And you see, they knew that. They knew that, especially Passover. You had to give a lamb. But if you came with an offering, it had to be at least a pigeon. <laughs> you know, I'm charging 200 bucks for a pigeon? Are you serious, man? And, but they couldn't, they, they, were, they were oppressing people who could afford it least. So just to give you an idea of what's going on in this world, imagine you're Peter and he's fishing on the Lake of Galilee. When the fishermen would get off the boat, the Roman tax collectors would be standing there. And they would have to pay a tax on every fish they drew out of that sea. So they were taxed before they even got the fish to market. Right? So they had heavy levies on them already from an oppressive Roman government. Then there were required offerings that they were to give the Lord, which is right. Right? And they would give that. They would go to give their offerings to the Lord in value, in honor, in reverence. And they were being ripped off when they gave it. So it was creating this portraying system of God as oppressive. It was creating a system of corruption. And it was actually creating lazy worshipers. The rich could just phone it in. Hey, uh, send my secretary down there and pick me up a couple of those kosher lambs, right? Yeah, for me and my brother. Yeah, just go down there and bring it. They, 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 that was not what God wanted. He didn't want them to phone it in. He wanted them to participate in worship. He wanted them to raise the offering themselves. He wanted them to give it personally. He wasn't, they, but the rabbis would be like, hey, yeah, for an extra, you know, 300 bucks, you know, we'll walk up there and kill it for you and we'll sign the document. We'll take care of everything for you. You don't even have to participate. It was never what the Lord wanted. And so the worshipers became lazy. They had a perspective of God that wasn't true. And the whole religious system was corrupted by this. And he threw over the table of money changers and they quoted Psalm 69 Zeal of your house has consumed me. This psalm's interesting because David was trying to bring the people back to true worship, and he was being ridiculed. That's the whole psalm. David is trying, David the king, imagine, is trying to call the nation back to true worship, and he's telling the Lord, they ridicule me in the gates. They mock me. They're making fun of me because I want to honor you. And he said, the reproaches of you have come upon me. And he's saying, David's saying, I feel reproached because they reproach you. Does it, honor, does it bother you when Jesus is reproached? Does it, does it bother you? It should bother you. And so this is what was happening. And so they quoted this verse, and Jesus is like, whoa, he's zealous. You know why? Because the honor of his father mattered. The honor of his heavenly father mattered. It mattered more than public acceptance. It mattered more than his own life. It mattered more than his reputation. He didn't care about his reputation. He cared about the honor of his father. Where are you? Just the thought. Say, that's a high calling. Yes, it is a high calling. Press upward, Christian, towards that calling. Honor the Lord above all things. Honor is everything. Honor is, when you worship, it's out of honor. When you give, it's out of honor. When you serve, it's out of honor. Honor is your motivation. 
Your motivation is not to be seen. Your motivation is not to platform yourself. Your motivation is not to increase your Instagram page. Your motivation is honor. That is the, that is the motivation of the kingdom. It is not self-serving. It is honor. I give because it is right. I serve because it honors my Father. Whatever it may be, it is honor. When I worship, it's because he wants it. You want it, I'm giving it. I don't feel like it, Lord, but I'm going to push it to you. Huh? Oh, I just don't feel like worshiping this morning. Go to the bathroom and do this. Right? Give yourself a couple of high karates. Get back in the room and push it. Give it to him. I don't like raising my hands. It's not my thing. I tell people all the time, it's Jesus' things. Lift up your hands in the congregation of saints. Shout to the Lord. Give him glory. Now what I want is what he wants. You Okay, here you go. It's not, it's not because I want to be seen. Oh, look at how holy the pastor worships. Ooh, how delicately, you know, they worship. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the honor. On, say it with me. Honor, honor is my motivation. I will have no higher motivation than honor. My motivation is not self or selfish purposes. It is honor for the glory and the honor of my Father. That's what it's all about, Christian. Honor is your motivation. And honor isn't because you want to. It's because he says so. Right? He's worth it. He's worth it. So Jesus, Jesus shows honor. Jesus speaks hope. Right? He speaks hope. It's a house of prayer for all nations. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? All ethnos. That's the word. Ethnic means simply somebody not like you. This is what he's telling these full-blooded Jews. These Judeans. Full-blooded. Trace my line back straight to my ancestor. You know, they could trace their lineage back. Full-blood Jews. And they, and they would segregate it based upon the full-blood Jews can worship here. Right? Only the full-blooded Jews can worship here. All y'all got to go to these other places. They had segregated it. And Jesus is like, mm-mm. It's integrated. It's not segregated. All people. The whosoever's. <laughs> the whosoever's. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's astounding to me. You know, we create these class systems even among ourselves, right? But he's not like that. He's not like that at all. He will exalt all who will honor him. Anyone who honors him. You want, you want the Father's exaltation? Honor him. You want the Father's exaltation? Serve him. Serve him. Not in religious pretense, but through relationship. And watch God exalt your life. Watch God change your life. He takes the lowly. He lifts the weary from the ashes and sits them with princes, the Bible says. You think he stutters? He will take the outcast. And he will lift them from the ash heap, and he will sit them among the rulers of his people. Hmm? Aren't you happy? <laughs> Nobody like Jesus, Christian. Nobody like Jesus. And he loves you, and he's for you on your worst day. It says he did miracles, and the people believed in his miracles. They said, hey, this must be the Messiah, but he didn't commit himself to them yet. He wasn't willing to commit to them yet because he had a long road ahead of him. He had many things to do. And as soon as he committed himself as Messiah, they wanted to kill him. So he knew, what was, he knew what was ahead of him. This is why he didn't do it. I want you to know Jesus loves you on your worst day. He's for you when you're against you. The Bible says if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Christ is Lord and he has risen from the dead, you'll be saved. 
Every person is born in sin. Every person is born separated. We must be born again. Born not of flesh and blood, but born of spirit. And the way that we're born of spirit is we open our hearts and we ask Jesus to come in. It makes no rational sense to us because it's not rational, it's spiritual. If you're here this morning, you've never given your life to Jesus, today's your day. If you're watching by stream and you've never given your life to Jesus, today's your day. It's a simple prayer. We're going to pray the prayer. The church is going to pray with us. And all you got to do is open up your heart. Jesus will do the rest. You just have to be willing. If you're willing and obedient, you'll eat the good of the land. Just open your heart. Take the red pill. Do what you've never done to become who you've never been. Let's pray. Say, dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Messiah. And I need a Savior. Therefore, I choose to believe. I open my heart to you, Jesus, and I ask you to come inside. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to heal me. I ask you to restore me, and I ask you to repurpose my life. All that I am, I give to you. All that you are, I receive as mine. From this day forward, I choose to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. God loves you. We love you, all y'all. Bless you guys. Prayer team's available over here, and uh, Firestarters is tonight at 4 if you want to come. Oh, bake sale. Bake sale. Calorie-free bake sale.